0: today so take a listen to the screen i'll come back and we'll just give a life lesson based upon what what the scripture is saying to us
1: in the lower story we have a scandal on our hands a young couple is engaged to be married and out of nowhere she ends up pregnant her fiance is not the father when word gets out in the little town of nazareth it's going to be big news What's a man to do when he finds this out? Well, Joseph wasn't the angry, haughty type. He loved Mary and didn't want her to be the obstacle of the public gossip mill. So his best idea was to simply break off the engagement quietly and move on with his life. But in the upper story, God sees it differently. We don't have a scandal on our hands, but a solution. And not just any old solution to any old problem. This is the solution to the problem. God determined that he was going to provide a way to get us back. The baby in the womb of Mary is that way. God promised to use Abraham's offspring to be the blessing to all nations. The baby in Mary's womb is that solution. Both she and Joseph are offsprings of Abraham's seed. Joseph's plan makes great sense in the lower story, but it alters what God has in mind in the upper story. Time for an angel to have a chat with Joseph. As was common in the Old Testament, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Here's what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. First, the angel reminds him that he is a son of David. He's not just an Israelite. He is from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. And We are told clearly by God through the prophets that the Messiah would come from this family. Joseph qualifies. The angel tells him that the baby in Mary's womb did not come from the seed of another man. She did not have a scandalous affair. The seed came from the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Well, it certainly had to be a great relief that Mary, his bride-to-be, didn't cheat on him. But there's more. Remember all the way back in chapter one, we learned in the story of Cain and Abel that the sin nature is transmitted to all of Adam and Eve's offspring through the seed of the man. That is why starting over with Noah's family didn't work. While Noah was truly a righteous man, meaning he really did try hard to do what was right, he was a carrier of the virus. The one in the womb of Mary has not been conceived by the seed of the man, but of the Holy Spirit. This means that the sin nature has not been transmitted to the child in her womb. From the lower story, it looked like the baby would be conceived out of a sin. Now we learn from the upper story that he has been conceived without sin. This is big news. The angel instructs Joseph that the child is a boy, a divine sonogram, and that he is to name him Jesus. Jesus essentially is the name Joshua, which means in Hebrew, God saves. His name makes sense because that will be his mission. He will save the people from their sins. We don't know how Jesus will do this yet, but we know the outcome. The removal of sin in our lives that keeps us from a relationship with God. Everything since chapter 2 of the story has been pointing to this day. And 2,000 years later, it is finally here. God has kept his promise, even through all the mishaps of Israel along the way. We are then told that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is happening to Mary was foretold by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. This is the first of at least 47 quotations that Matthew takes from the Old Testament to refer to Jesus, the Messiah. Everything in the life and history of Israel has been pointing to Jesus' arrival everything. Now, another name that Jesus would be referred to is by the name Emmanuel. In Hebrew, this name literally means God with us. The baby growing in Mary's womb is none other than God himself. He is leaving the upper story and coming down to not only be with us in the lower story, but to be one of us. That's what the word incarnation means in flesh. God is coming down and taking up flesh to be among us. He is our representative. He has to come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to take away our sin that keeps us from God. Now, how would you like to wake up from a dream like that? Although Joseph likely had lots of questions swimming around in his head, like how does one go about parenting God, he made up his mind on what he was going to do. He calls Mary and gets together. You can imagine how nervous she must have been. Historians tell us that she was somewhere around 14 years old, maybe 16. What is Joseph going to do is Mary's primary concern. The ball is in his court. From the lower story perspective, he had good reason to be angry. Joseph tells her about his upper story encounter. He tells her he knows what's going on and how it's all going to happen. Then he grabs her by the hand and looks her square in the eye and says, "If you're still willing, I would love to be your husband and we'll get through this together." Well, they get married and the baby Jesus grows in her belly. When when Mary is about to term and ready to deliver, a very unfortunate and inconvenient requirement is laid upon them in the lower story. Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome, required all people to travel to their own towns to be counted in a census. Mary and Joseph's hometown wasn't Nazareth, but Bethlehem. It'll take them three days on a donkey to make the trip. I'm sure that Mary's OBGYN told her that donkey travel this late in the pregnancy is forbidden, but she has no choice. Caesar ruled the lower story. They travel to Bethlehem, and wouldn't you know it, Mary goes into labor. The only place they could find to deliver God was a cave-like stable out behind one of the local Bethlehem inns. How unfortunate that the best we could do for the arrival of God to our world was a birth in a barn. I'm I'm not the only one who thinks that way. There's a story told of a school that planned a great Christmas pageant. All the important parts were given to the brightest students. The smartest girl was chosen to be Mary. The smartest boy was to play Joseph. The next smartest group played the three kings, the angels, and the shepherds. There was only one part no one wanted. It was the part of the innkeeper, and it went to the least gifted student in the class. As the day approached, the boy playing the innkeeper began to worry. He couldn't imagine telling Mary and Joseph that there was no room in the inn. What was he going to do? Finally, it was curtain time. Parents, relatives, and friends packed the auditorium. They proudly watched the story unfold as their children played important roles. Meanwhile, the innkeeper grew more and more anxious. The pressure mounted as Mary and Joseph approached. He didn't know what to do. When Mary and Joseph knocked, suddenly he threw open the door and exclaimed, Come on in! I've been expecting you. With that, the crowd cheered and clapped and the plague came to an end. But in the upper story, this is exactly what God had in mind. To fulfill the prophecy, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem in humble circumstances. You know, Caesar thought he was in charge of the world. God is in charge, interceding as something, in something as benign as a census to bring about his upper story plan. Now, the arrival of Jesus is going to change everything. We'll see this in the chapters to come, but right now, I wanna make an observation. Later in the story, we are told over and over again that when we accept Jesus as our Savior, the forgiver of our sins, he comes into us like he came into Mary, not into our womb, but into our lives. And just like in Mary's case, as Jesus grew in her, He just had to eventually come out. The same is true of us today. As Jesus's life grows in us, he will eventually come out of us as well for people to see. And we want all the people in our lives to see Jesus because his birth is not the result of a scandal, but a solution to our scandal to our sin. This should cause us to shout out the same words of the heavenly host upon seeing Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Well Randy
0: has just told the story of Jesus' birth from the lower story, from the human level. The manger, the shepherds, his birth in the city of Bethlehem. But when the Apostle John begins his book, the book of John, he doesn't start there. He goes all the way back, eons of time, back into eternity to the real beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 1, verse number 1, John opens his book by repeating the very same words that we also find at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. John says, in the beginning. And when John says that, he's referring to really two beginnings. And we're going to talk about each one of those. He's referring to the beginning of the creation, what we call nature. But he's also referring to the salvation of a broken creation that was going to take place. And how Jesus Christ would come in and begin to restore what had been broken so the story is telling us that God is a God of two great beginnings. And both of these beginnings are awesomely miraculous. Let's start with the first beginning. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is the start of the first miracle. What we would call nature. The, the miracle of nature that you and I live on breathe in, work on, recreate on, live our lives on. And yet, don't we often forget just how miraculous this planet really is? Uh, In fact, there would be some people, a lot of people on our planet, that would say, I've never seen a miracle. I haven't even come close to seeing a miracle. Well, I just want to ask you all for a few minutes, and then you can bring your attention back this way. But for a few minutes, it's okay if you look out the windows, okay? Take a look out the windows this morning. Okay, when Jill and I walked into this church sanctuary for the very first time several years ago, we had never been here before. The minute I stepped into this sanctuary, one of the things that really grabbed my attention and I was so grateful for was these large windows because I thought to myself, man, in this sacred space in the room, we're going to be worshiping God as our Savior and our Redeemer. But we're also going to be able to take a glance out the windows now and then and worship him as our majestic and mighty and wise, awesome creator. And God is both, isn't he? So I'm grateful for the architecture of this building. And so as you keep taking a look out the windows there, uh, God created everything you see out those windows. He created it out of pure and absolute nothing. The Latin word for that is ex nihilo. Uh, now I'm pretty amazed. There's an artist on PBS, and maybe you've seen him. Uh, he's always on there teaching people how to paint. Well, I can't begin to paint, uh, but this guy he amazes me. He he has all the equipment that an artist needs. He has his canvas and his easel. He has his palette full of different colors of paints, and just with so quickly, just taking with quick strokes, he can paint a pine tree. And then a pine forest. And I want to tell you something. I don't know how he does it in a few seconds, but it looks exactly like a pine forest. And then he can fill in a a nice stream going down through the forest, going off into a lake. And he can put mountains in the background, and then he can start filling it with wildlife. Okay, I don't know how he does that. I couldn't begin to do it. I'm amazed by that. But you know what? That's nothing compared to what the great artist God did. He didn't have any equipment to start we had nothing to work with but he made what you and I see out the window this morning and beyond in fact if you've been on vacation this summer and I hope you have if you went to the mountains if you went out onto the big prairies if you went to the seashore if you got in an airplane and flew into the heavens above and and parachuted out and I know there's one person here that did that about two weeks ago and they're still here I'm grateful for that uh, <laughs> Tim, Timothy, are you in here? There he is. All right. You can talk to him afterwards if you want to try it. Uh, Anyone been bungee jumping this summer? Timothy? (laughs) All right. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, what I'm trying to say is this. I don't care what you've done, where you've been on vacation this summer, what you've enjoyed. It is a mind-boggling miracle that was made out of absolute nothing. Nothing by the unimaginable power and wisdom of God. But we do forget that we're living in the midst of an astounding miracle. And I like what poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote. And, and all, the, She was thinking about something so simple one day. Maybe she had just seen one. Maybe she had one in her yard. She was thinking about a simple, common, plain blackberry bush. But as she thought about that and reflected upon it, these are the words she put together. Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush is aflame with God. And only he who sees this will take off his shoes like Moses did while the rest will sit around the bush and just pick the blackberries. I think she hit the nail on the head there. What do we see? Another writer that I really like from the early part of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton. He was a British writer and sort of a philosopher along with it. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And he comments on how, because of all the routine and the regularity of nature, it doesn't seem like it's a miracle. But the very opposite is true. I mean, the same thing happens day after day after day, century after century after century after century. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. It's easy for that to get boring, isn't it? But you know, here's what he says. He says when God created nature, he didn't just start nature like a, a machine, turn the switch on, and then just, then just sort of go sit down somewhere and let the machine run off on its own. No, that isn't what God did. God has stayed intimately involved in every part of, of nature, down to the flowers, to the great universal planets and orbits and constellations. And this is what he said about this. This is what G.K. Chesterton based this upon what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple of comments Jesus made. Jesus said that uh, one little sparrow flying through the sky. How many sparrows are, are there on planet Earth? I've never counted them. Jesus said if one of them, just one sparrow, Drops out of the sky, gets in trouble and drops out of the sky. The Heavenly Father cares. He sees the sparrow. And then he also said there that the Heavenly Father is the one who clothes the flowers of the field in all their beauty and brilliance. God is intimately involved. Well, G.K. Chesterton, he explained it like this the sun coming up every day and going down every day, that's not boring. In fact, Chesterton said it this way, every morning God says to the sun, do it again, <laughs> do it again. And so the sun comes up and it shines and then it goes back down again. And, what he, and he also had this statement that I like. He says the regularity that we see in nature, day, the day by day stuff going on, he says that's the encore, the daily encore of God's great miracle in this world. And you know what? An encore always deserves a standing ovation, right? Don't encores and standing ovations go together? So here's what we really should be doing tomorrow morning, about, what, 6 a.m., when the sun rises. I expect all of you to be up, outside, <laughs> on your feet, standing ovation. <laughs> God has done it again. God brought, I mean, the miracle of the sun coming up to... Uh, on this millionth day of creation, or whatever it is, is just as miraculous as it was the very first day the sun came up. And thats if we have eyes to see it, then not one of us can say that we've never seen a miracle because we, John Calvin said we are living in the midst of a dazzling theater every single conscious moment of our lives. We're living in the midst of a miraculous work of God. Now, That's the first miracle. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the second beginning and the second miracle that John chapter 1 verse 1 refers to is far more miraculous than what I've just described because of this. And this is is just unimaginable. But the God of creation, the God of the creation miracle who is far above and outside of this space-time physical world of ours, that God incredibly came into our world. I'll tell you what, that's the miracle of miracles. I don't think that could ever be topped. Such a God, so mighty, so powerful, as to see the sparrows, as to bring the sun up every day, and all the other millions of things he's done and, and does. He came and lived among us. And so John chapter 1, verse 1 says, and we're going to break this verse down. We just want to walk through this because it says something most profound. In the beginning was the Word. The emphasis on the and Word. Now what that means is already existing before time and creation was an eternal person who was already there, and he was called by this title. The Word. That's sort of a strange name for someone, but that's the title that was given to Jesus right there. The Word. Now, it even gets a little more mysterious and exciting as we go on to the next phrase. And the Word was with God. So, now we have two, we have two persons coming into the picture here. We have this person, this eternal person, who's, who's called the Word, and then alongside of him, we have God. The word was with God. And then the next phrase, boy, this really, this really takes it further. And it says, and the word was God. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought we just said the word was with God. But now John is saying the word is not only with God, but the word is God. So, obviously, what we have here is we have two distinct eternal persons who are both the one eternal God. Now, let's go on a little bit. John gives us a little more clarity on this in verse number 18 of the same chapter. Who is this one who's called the Word, who has been eternally alongside the Father? This is what John 1.18 says. No one has ever seen God. Nobody's ever seen God. Except God, the only Son, And then listen to the next phrase. Who is at the Father's side? So who is at the Father's side for all of eternity? It is his eternal Son. And it's his eternal Son who's given this name, this strange name, the Word. Why was he given that name and what does it mean? Well, it's pretty simple. The the Greek word in which this was originally written, uh, the word is logos. And that Greek word is the word for expressing yourself in words. And isn't that how we, we tell who, who a person is? The Bible says out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We reveal ourselves by the words that we speak. And so Jesus is called the word, the eternal word, because he completely, totally, ex- exhaustively expresses everything that God the Father is to the depths of his being. And so Jesus is not the kind of son who one time didn't exist and was born into existence, no. Jesus is an eternal son with an eternal father. And isn't it marvelous that when we, come, when we get back behind creation, we don't find some sort of a cold-hearted, stoic, impersonal force there. We don't find some, corporate, some cold-hearted corporate executive sitting back there pulling the strings of creation issuing out orders etc. what do we who do we find at the very uh, behind all of creation we find a father and a son i think that's good we find a family we find parent child parent child father son controlling and guiding and creating our whole universe that tells us this verse opens up to us i think the most miraculous an awesome thing about this God who is behind all things. Another way of saying it is God is relational. God the Son and God the Father. And you know what? It even gets more relational than that as we know the Scripture because other Scriptures tell us that there's a third distinct eternal person who is also alongside both the Father and the Son. His name is the Holy Spirit. So we have... And our math doesn't really work here. So if you're a mathematician, sort of set your mathematics aside for me, because it's not going to work. Uh, To try to describe the nature of God, here's God's nature. Our God is one God who, in a way far beyond our comprehension, lives in an eternal relationship of three persons. So the awesome Trinity turns out to be the most awesome of all imaginable relationships. Now, I'm knowing, I'm, I know I'm overusing the word awesome today, but I can't think of any <laughs> That's what fits the situation. Now, we, how, can we, how can we even get a handle on this, grasping this? We've gotten a glimpse of the awesomeness <laughs> of the father, the relationship between the father and the son, right here in this service a few minutes ago. Manuel and Alma brought little Isaac up here. And so, Manuel, you don't have to answer right now, okay? This is... Uh, You can tell me afterward, okay? But Manuel, here's a question I would have for you as the father of your son. Um, Could you find adequate words to, to describe the kind of love, the bond that you feel with your son? All right, no. And every other father in here, I think you identify with that. You couldn't do it. And Alma, I would ask Alma the same question as the mother of little Isaac. Uh, no way to describe that. I mean, the closeness. You hold him. You stand there like parents do when you put him to bed. You stand there for 15 minutes or more. You just watch him. You can't believe it. This is amazing. I, I, I mean, the, you, you, you could not have greater love. It, you know, it's an energy and a power that just bonds you together. But you know what? Here's, here's the contrast. As close as you are to your son, there is no way that you would ever be able to become so totally close to him that it could be said that yours and his very beings have completely merged together. Couldn't, no human love can ever get that far, go that far, great as it is. But that's exactly what the case is with God the Father. And God the Son. they maintain their distinctness as persons, two distinct persons, the Holy Spirit's in there too. But they know each other so deeply, and the bond between them is so exhausted and total and complete that while maintaining their distinctiveness, their natures merge somehow into one being. And that's the best way I can describe and that, that falls short of God the Trinity. But you see, that, like we said a moment ago, the profound thing about that is this. Our God is a God of relationship. That's the, base, that's the most basic thing about God. And it not only explains the most basic thing about God, it also, we who are made in His image, it explains the most basic thing about you and me. Don't we find our meaning in relationships? Isn't it, yes, we do. And and the relationship that we were first made to have before those wonderful relationships with others, we were made, first of all, to come into a relationship with that highly, gloriously relational God. That's why he made made us in his image. Now, let's come back to chapter 1 and see another picture, another part of this picture. Um... What we've been learning as we've been going through the entire story from the book of Genesis forward and what John touches upon right here in John chapter 1, uh, verse 3 is that in the beginning the Father and the Spirit decided to give the Son, Jesus Christ the center stage and the lead role in the drama of creation. John 1, verse 3 says this Through Him, that is Jesus Christ All things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So, if you look out the window here this morning, what the Holy, what the Father and the Holy Spirit are saying to us is: when you look out the window today, you're seeing what Jesus did. Uh, You know, in the Oscars, they always have two people come out and walk up to the desk, and they have the envelope, and then they'll open up the envelope and they'll say, "And the Oscar goes to." Well, that's what the Father and the Spirit did, sort of, (laughs) at the beginning of creation. They came out, Father and Spirit, and they said, and the Oscar, the star role in the drama of creation goes to the eternal Son, goes to Jesus Christ. Listen to what Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him, that is the Son of God, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know that Greek word for holding things together? is. If I were gripping, I don't see anything I can grip up here and drop. Uh, let me try this. Grab a piece of paper. Uh, the word in the Greek there is very simple. It just means when it says Christ is holding on to creation, it's the word that means to, to tightly grip. Something so you're holding it stable. So there's more than gravity that's holding this planet together. It the scripture says it is the power, the energy, the presence of Jesus Christ that holds it together. And if Jesus were to release His grip on the creation for an instant of time, it would all it would all disintegrate. It would all drop and fall apart. So Jesus Christ is He is the main He He's He has the main role in this planet that you and I live upon. And now, that's the first beginning. Jesus, the lead role. But when our sins corrupted his creation, like Randy told us, all of us fell into sin. We became separated from God, so God is a stranger to us. But then it was Jesus who was once again given the leading role to come and give the world a second chance, a new beginning, a a second beginning. And that's what John chapter 1, verse 14, that's what it's saying. Listen to it. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus plays the lead role in the second beginning. Listen to, what, listen to how this role is described in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. That means Jesus, Jesus in his position as the second person of Trinity, he wasn't up there grasping with greed and power hungry and ego. He wasn't grasping his position like some leaders do. No, he wasn't, he, that wasn't it at all. In fact, what did he do? It says, this glorious, great, eternal, everlasting God who created all things... He made Himself nothing. He took upon Himself the very nature of a servant. He became made in human likeness. He came and lived among us. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so all for His love of you and me and every other person on this planet, the eternal Son of God left heaven, came to a cross, took, his, took our sins. Every sin you've ever committed, big or small, he took the blame. He hung on the cross for your sins and mine. No one's ever done anything nearly so great and wonderful for any of us. He died for our sins so that we could come to him and be forgiven of our sins and the separation between us and God be erased and replaced with that great relationship that we were talking about a minute ago. And for Jesus' flawless, perfect role in giving us a second beginning, verse number nine says that Jesus got another Oscar. This is how it's explained. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, these two miraculous beginnings, what Jesus began first at creation and then what he began at the cross, they point to a third miraculous beginning that he desires. And that is the miraculous beginning in your life, a new beginning in your life. Now, Today is your opportunity for a new beginning. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life and my life. And this is true no matter whether you have been serving God for years or if you have never even given Him your life. Today is the day for a new beginning. Now, My granddaughter, Danielle, she has a plaque in her room that I really like. And this is what it says. We are unfinished people living in an unfinished world fulfilling an unfinished plan. Now if you're a Christian this morning there are still a thousand new things the Lord wants to begin in your life not we haven't even come close to arriving yet the apostle paul at the end of his life said i haven't arrived i'm pressing on there are a thousand things new beginnings that God has for every Christian in this room today, no, longer, no matter how long you've served Christ. And I can guarantee this too, that one of those new beginnings is what the Lord wants to speak to you about while you sit in your church chair here this morning. The Lord wants to speak to every one of us, including myself, about the area of, life, of my life, your life, that he is now working in. A new beginning, a, a, a new day, going forward. That's true of every single one of us here. There is a philosophy called existentialism. There's a lot about it that, has not, that is certainly contrary to Christianity, but I'll tell you what, they got one thing right, because the, one of the basic ideas of existentialism is this: that the, this very moment is the important intersection, is the most important intersection with reality that you've ever had up to this point in your life, this instant, this moment, because we've captured it in our English language in this, in this one little word, now. Now, existentialism is all about the importance of now. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, right now, but what about right now? So this is your intersection with God in this moment, this morning. He's here, and you're here. All of the decisions... That you have made in the past have been very important decisions. But they are not nearly as important as the decision God is calling you to make now as we sit here in this intersection with Him. So, what you decide this morning about Jesus Christ, what you decide this morning about your level of commitment to Him, your devotion, what you, what you, what decision you make about surrendering your life to Him. It's most important decision right now because we don't coast along on yesterday's faith and yesterday's spiritual experiences. Those are yesterday. So we, a few moments ago, the worship team led us in the song, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. And then we went on to sing, I surrender all, I surrender all, I surrender all. It's great that we've sung that in the past. But you know what? God wants, that, God wants us to be singing that song with all of our passion and all of our heart to him today, right now. So the, the question I have for Christians this morning is this. And, and, I, I, and I, these are questions for, for Jim Nichols too. Are you still giving Jesus the lead role, the center stage in your life? Have you joined the Father and the Spirit in giving all the glory to the Son? Whose glory are you living for? Have you exalted Jesus to the highest place in your life? Is his name the one that is most precious of all names to you? Is Jesus still playing the star roar, a star role in your life? Now, if you're here and you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, uh, the question for you is, will you give him that lead role so that this can be the day of a brand new beginning in your life? And you know what? This is a great thing. No matter what has been in the past, that's the past. Jesus is here now in the present to take the lead role in the process of creating the new you. And John describes this third miraculous beginning that can happen inside of our lives in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 and 12, 13. Here it is. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And these verses are describing how so many people miss God. He came to his own. They rejected him. They didn't receive him. But listen to verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will. In other words, not like natural birth, wonderful as that is, but Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth that can take place inside of a person's life. Uh, And how does that birth take place? If I bring my faith to Jesus Christ, there's a conception that takes place inside of my life. And what that conception is is the very life and presence of God comes in. And if you've never experienced that, and if you want to have a new beginning in your life today, that's exactly how you can do it. You can come to Christ and say, Lord, I want, I want what you have for me. I want a new life. I come to you in faith. I believe you died on that cross for me. Come into my life. And Jesus Christ will come in and from the inside begin to transform, change your life. He'll put the right people in your path. He'll lead you into growth environments uh, like churches and and Bible studies and all those counselors, if that needs to be a part of it. Uh, Seize the moment. Seize God. Let this moment be the moment that you prayed the very deepest prayer of your life that you've ever prayed. And that's for all of us, Christian or person that's still seeking God. That's what God's existentialism is all about. It's now. Let this be the moment of our deepest uh, surrender, dedication to him. And let him hear it this morning from each of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your son who came into our world, the creator of everything, came into our world and he went to a cross so we can all have a new beginning and our lives could be lived in your presence and with your guidance and your direction and your peace and your hope and your joy and finally, Lord, your eternal life. We're so grateful for that, Lord, that you've come to free us from our sins to give us your life even while we're living here. So, Father, I pray this morning that each and every one of us in this room here in your presence now will at this moment be praying to you, offering to you the most dedicated, sincere, fervent surrender of our lives that we've ever prayed up to this point in our lives. I pray that will be the sounding note of these next few moments of response to you. Oh God, not taking you for granted, not taking our commitment to you for granted, but Lord, renewing that commitment with every fiber and ounce of energy and passion and faith that we have in our hearts. Lord, let that be the case in every one of our lives this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you then over these next moments as we respond. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will fill this room and put all the glory, put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, the one who's the lead role, has the lead role in all creation. And Father, we give you praise and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.